0: episode 49 of the proper mental podcast and my guest this week is gabriel nathan who is a writer editor and suicide awareness advocate he's also a ted speaker and a documentary maker and it was his documentary about suicide awareness which is called a beautiful day tomorrow taking suicide awareness on the road it was this documentary that kind of brought gabe to my attention Um, and basically he filmed it in 2019 where he drove 1100 miles around america in his classic 1963 V-Dub Beetle with the National Suicide Prevention Hotline just in, like, massive letters on the back. And he drives around America, and people stop him for a chat because he's got this really cool, like, classic, iconic car and the word suicide in great big letters, you know, just across the back of the window. And it's absolutely amazing the people that just complete strangers that just want to just chat to him, you know? And I found it really moving. I found it really interesting, a fascinating insight into what can make people open up to talk about these things that traditionally we're told, you know, no one wants to talk about. Um, Yeah, it's really good. So I found out about Gabe um, when our mutual friend, Claire Easton, shared something on a story about some of his writing work. And I went on his social media, I found a link to the doc, and later that night, me and my wife watched it on YouTube. And I was taken by it pretty much straight away. Within like 20 minutes, I think I'd sent Gabe a message to see if he wanted to come on and have a chat about it. And in the first, I suppose it's in like the first five or 10 minutes and Gabe's packing his bags and he's saying goodbye to his family to set off on this like monster trip. And it was really sweet and really emotional. And I kind of thought, gosh, it's only five, 10 minutes in and I'm already emotionally invested in this guy and what he's going to do. You know, I thought I am... All in on this bloke. And I need to know that what happens. I need to know that, you know, I want to find out what he finds out. And, you know, I need to know that he's okay on this journey. Um And it, yeah, it was just lovely. It's a really nice experience, really insightful documentary. Um So yeah, I messaged him straight away. He got right back to me. Um, and within a couple of days we were navigating the time difference to the USA to have a bit of a chat. And we talk all about the film and what it was like to make the film and what it was like to have those conversations. We talk about his VW Beetle and how buying it and restoring it uh, really helped Gabe when his mental health was in quite a bad place. We talk all about Gabe's own lived experience with anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Um, That's the stuff that kind of just inspired him to be such a passionate advocate. Crikey, we talk about a lot of stuff in this. We talk a lot about suicide, suicidal thoughts, about the language we use around suicide, about how to start and have these sorts of conversations, the importance of talking, the importance of listening. Um, Yeah, it's a great chat. You know, Gabe's a lovely, lovely man, and it was a real pleasure to chat to him. I've put all the links to the things that Gabe does in the episode notes. So he's the editor at in chief at something called the OC87 Recovery Diaries, which is an online publication that's devoted to publishing first-person essays and original documentary films about mental health. He's also done a TED Talk, so I've put the link to that. I've put a link to the website where you can find out more about it, more about his car and more about his film. I've put all the links to all the things that I do in the episode notes as well. So if you want to get hold of me, that's how you do it. If you could take just a couple of minutes to rate and review this episode or any episode of the podcast it would be very very much appreciated i think that's everything i need to tell you this is episode 49 of the proper mental podcast with gabriel nathan thank you very much for listening enjoy yeah is there anything Gabe you need from me before we um before we get started
1: well the only thing I need to know is can I swear on your show you certainly can it's just it's just (laughs) it's so funny and I always ask that because (laughs) it's just there people use a profanity in very different ways um and as a writer I, I I had to learn how to like gently pepper um things and and you know or create characters who use it more than others and blah 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 but it's just since i was a child i guess it's just the way my family talked it's just been a part of my vernacular and especially when i get passionate which i am very about suicide awareness things just tend to fly out so i just want to make sure that that's okay um you know yeah. so that's that's what it's the only thing i always ask people so good ah, oh, super yeah no that's completely fine you can say absolutely um whatever you
0: like and my sort of i i suppose i'd just like to say before we start my priority is that you're comfortable and happy with the end product right so if afterwards you think oh should i've said that or whatever just let me know i cut it out i'm not precious i'm, about I'm it not i'm way. not
1: well i'm the same way and i i really believe in authenticity and i don't believe in uh like having some kind of polished persona and like well i need to see the final cut of that and the fuck that I, I'm not I'm not like that at all we're just gonna go and it's gonna be lovely and that'll be what it is
0: yeah that's it exactly yeah I, I love that I kind of I do say to people like my podcast is a little scruffy around the edges but you know what mental Great. health mental health scruffy right it sure and, fucking is yeah and it, it is if you want people to relate to it if it's all like polished and nice and in a studio and it, that's not real right that's no, not no. real life and if we're talking about real things then we need to sound like real let's, people. let's be
1: real that's right
0: Yeah, fantastic. Oh, well, I'll just do like a little two-line intro and then we'll just jump straight in game if that's all right with you, mate. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Cool. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Gabriel Nathan. How are you, mate? I'm lovely. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Very, very well indeed. I'm a little bit um, in shock, actually, Gabe, because this came together so fast. Um, I kind of only watched your film on like Tuesday or Wednesday and then already we're having this, this conversation. So um, I say let's,
1: let's go, you know, why, why wait?
0: Yeah, definitely. No, it's awesome. Sometimes these things take a bit of bit of organizing. So it's nice to have one run so uh run so smoothly. Um the first thing I'd need to ask you, Gabe, really, um, is how's Herbie? Because I've seen on your Instagram story that he's in the wars at the moment, right? He he
1: is, and uh, he's not well. And um, you know, this is this is the thing. Like he's a 57-year-old car, and some parts on him are original, and that's it's a long time to be bumming around and, and being a car. Um, a lot of parts are not original. Um, but we, we really have our share of troubles and uh, not to get too like, Ooh, let's make a mental health metaphor out of this, but, um, you know, mental health recovery is not linear and you take two steps forward and one step back or one step forward and three steps back. And my, I've owned my Beatles since 2017. And in that time together, and we we are very much together, we are very much a partnership. um, We've failed each other in various ways. And, you know, he's Broken down on me in some very inhospitable uh, situations and circumstances, and and I have been very unkind to him. Um, I've yelled at him and I've called him a Nazi, um, which is not that's really not nice, um, and and it's a really low blow. And it harkens back to you know Adolf Hitler did commission uh, the VW Bug, commissioned Dr. Ferdinand Porsche to to make a a, a small car for the German family. Um, and so there's, there is that lineage that's very complicated and I'm Jewish and that that further complicates my relationship with Herbie. But anyway, so like we've, we've gone at it together um, over our time together. And it's, it is very much like how my own mental health and, and I think the mental health journey of everyone has its, its times in the gutter. And um, the times when you're down, and you know you're you're really having this existential thing of like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, is this worth it? Why? Why? Why is this happening? I, I'm trying so hard, and I'm doing all the right things. And either as a person, I go to therapy, I take medication, uh, I try to be mindful, I try to watch uh, what I eat, I try to get enough sleep, I try to have lovely relationships with people. And still depression comes and wants to kick me in the balls, right? Um, and same thing with with Herbie. I take him to the, the uh, specialist mechanic. Uh, I use only the, the best German parts. I don't buy crap for him. I, I treat him with love and kindness. And, I, and, and over and over again, we're, we're in this situation. Um, so today, it, I, I got him to the repair shop on Friday night. The repair shop is closed Saturday and Sunday. So he's just sitting there nothing's happening. And I'm just sitting here, um, without my partner and it feels like shit. Um, but I know that Monday, the phone's going to ring and it'll be Harold from jeans, foreign cars. And he'll say, look, this is what I found. And this is what we're going to do. And there'll be a plan. Um, and just like I have a plan for managing my mental health, um, we'll, we'll roll with that and we'll figure out the next step.
0: Yeah. That's an absolutely lovely metaphor. And I think like when you own a classic car, the, The amount of extra sort of love and care and attention you have to give it to keep it ticking over is also a really lovely metaphor for mental health as well. You know, we sometimes do have to give ourselves and others around us that extra, extra bit of care, extra bit of love. Yes. Extra bit of uh, compassion. Um, Yeah. So I think that that fits together. Very, very nice, mate. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Speaking of of the car, I watched your film this week, mate. So um, for anyone who. Hasn't seen it. A Beautiful Day Tomorrow is what it's called. And um, I was so touched by it, Gabe. I just thought it was lovely. I was only 20 minutes in. I was only 20 minutes in when I sent you that message. I didn't even know where it was going to go. That's lovely. I love it. (laughs) I thought I'd really like to, to talk to this guy. But um, for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen it yet, and I will load the episode notes um, and any promotion of this with, with the link so people can get their, get their eyes on it. But for anyone who hasn't seen it, what's the, the general premise of your film and how did it kind of come about?
1: So the general premise is, so I have this 1963 VW Beetle and it's done up as Herbie the Love Bug. It's got the red, white, and blue stripes and the 53 everywhere and all of that um, from the film. If you if you haven't seen the Love Bug and I'm not talking about any of the sequels, if you haven't seen the, the 1969 uh, Walt Disney film, The Love Bug, um, it's on Disney Plus and, and that should really be on your to-do list. And then watch A Beautiful Day Tomorrow because then you'll really, really get it. Um, but anyway, so I have this Herbie replica that I you know, have been wanting to make my whole life and, and finally did it in, in 2017. And um, basically the long and short of it is I bought this car to help me um, with my depression and help me feel better and, and fill some kind of hole. Right. And so it was a selfish thing when I got it and I started driving it around and I started getting, you know, thumbs up and waves and smiles and Herbie and, you know, and I started going, oh, this car is making other people feel lovely and, and sweet and, and happy. And that's great. So it then started to be as much about me as about other people. So it was like, well, instead of just taking a pleasure drive to make me feel better, it's like I'm going out and driving around a neighborhood and people get excited. And, and like that's great. So then um, people would stop and talk to me um, which, you know, for someone with social anxiety and that's, that's hard. Um, but I could talk to someone about Herbie all day. So I would talk to people and then they would say, so we would talk about the car for a little bit. Then they go, so what do you do? And I'd say, well, I, I used to work in a locked inpatient psychiatric hospital. And I, I now run this website called, I manage this website called OC87 recovery diaries. And it's, it's people with living with mental health challenges and, And so then people would start to like open up about their mental health challenges or uh, a relative who died by suicide or someone who's navigating the inpatient mental health system. And, you know, can you give me some advice about like what hospital in the neighborhood's good or what, you know, so it'd start having these mental health conversations as because of this car. Right. So then I started thinking, well, if these conversations are just happening kind of, organically why don't I just make them happen um so I put the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number all over the rear window of the car um if if you're in the UK you have different numbers in America it's 1-800-273-8255 that number is changing next year to 988 so I'll obviously be changing my window cling um but anyway I know you guys have wonderful resources you've got the Samaritans there and, and on um there's this organization, Bristol um, Suicide Prevention, that, that goes out and w- with volunteers and, and interacts with people who are are in crisis. And, and you just have such lovely services there in the UK. Um, but anyway, so I've got the Lifeline number on the back of my car. And now everybody who sees Herbie gets that message, um, whether they stop and talk to me or not. You know they see it all over the rear window they take a picture of the rear window they post it on instagram they're kind of doing my work for me which is great um but i was then having these conversations about suicide all through my neighborhood and my kind of my daily travels and then i was like well let's take a road trip <laughs> let's let's actually go on a journey and then make a film about what's already happening kind of on a micro level um, and I got funding from a couple of different sources to to make a, a film and kind of support me on my on my journey and um, have the film edited so that it's not just me like uh, you know, fumping around on the computer. It, it, it's like a, it's a nice film. Um, so uh, that's how that happened. And I knew that I had friends, kind of up the East coast of the, the United States who either had uh, lost someone to suicide or had experience with suicidality or a suicide attempt. Um, so I kind of just jotted out like a rough journey. I was like, oh, well, I'll talk to, uh, you know my friend Stair in Manhattan and then I'll talk to Anne Marie in, in Rochester and I'll, I'll kind of, I, the idea was to make it all the way up to Maine. If you watch the film, you'll see that didn't happen um, but uh, other lovely things did. And what I like about the film is it's, it's also like you have this idea of how something's going to be in your head and then it doesn't quite turn out that way, but it's lovely anyway. Um, and that's kind of like life, right? Yeah, very much so.
0: Yeah, very much. So the thing that um one of the things that really jumped out at me early on in in the film, Gabe, is that you had your planned conversations, like you say, and they were all beautiful. And they were because you had that rapport with the people that you were talking to. You know that was that was handled really nicely. But it was the conversations that came out of nowhere when you yeah. were like filling your car up and um, were ch- chatting to the to the veteran and yeah. the um, that group of girls at the university. Mm-hmm. And you know, it just the way those conversations just came absolutely out of nowhere. And it really got me thinking about this whole thing about um, talking about mental health, because we, you know, we promote to talk and it is it's it's brilliant to talk. It's powerful. It's the first step. We never talk about how hard it is to talk. Yes. And we never talk about how hard it is finding someone who can listen. And I think one of the things that jumped out to me is that your you and Herbie together kind of created this space that almost made people want to talk. And maybe we're not that bad at talking after all. Maybe we just don't have the right places or the right space or someone to facilitate the talk because people were really keen to talk to you, mate.
1: Well, I think, so I I love what you said, Tom. And I, 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 I really think that we're actually quite good at talking. Um, I think we're, we're, we're really adept at kind of feeling our feels and, but it's, we're, and I've used this metaphor before and it, it feels tired to me, but maybe your audience hasn't heard it yet. So I'll, I'll use it here where I, I really look at people as, you know, so you get eggs from the market, right? And there's this thin little shell. I really feel like we're all inside an egg and this is very, very thin little shell. And all someone has to do is on that very thin shell and it's gonna crack. And we're like, we're just in there, like aching. Please, somebody tap on my shell. Please, please, please. I've got so much, we've got so much fucking shit, Tom, that we're all walking around with all the time, right? And that eggshell is like, uh, it, wants to, it wants to burst because of all this stuff. So all I'm doing is to do, 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 do in my little car. And I'm, I'm at, um, at Cornell University. I was literally just sitting in my car um, reviewing a map and reviewing notes about where I was going to go. And these girls were like, oh my God, it's Herbie. Can we take a picture of your car? I'm like, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And, and, then, and that's all it was, right? And so and it, they were talking to me about, one girl was talking about self-harm and one girl was talking about her relationship with her mom. And, and it's just like, blah, it just wants to come out. Um, and I think, I think about my mother. So you, my father's in the film. My mother is nowhere to be seen because my mother would rather like chew broken glass than than talk about, you know, things that are going on with her and whatever. But I wonder what kind of person, who would it have to be to tap tap on my mother's eggshell? And I I, I think it's just, my approach doesn't work with her. <laughs> um, and and I, I get that and that's fine. But like someone's would, and my approach doesn't work with everybody. Um, and, it's, and it's fine. People respond to different people and different approaches and different things. Um, but I feel like there's, there's someone out there who's, who's good for you, who's, a, who's the right kind of connector for you. And it's just like, I don't know, finding that person and, and linking up with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, very much so. It's something I'm trying to kind of demonstrate through this podcast is all the different types of stuff that's out there. Because when I was poorly myself, I, I didn't know anything about mental health and I didn't know what was out there. I knew the Samaritans. I knew the stereotypical, you know, top three on Google. I knew about mm-hmm. all that stuff. And it felt like such a, a stereotype to even, you know, to even think about using those services. If anything, it made me feel worse, you know. Right, right, and, right but then now I'm finding out this world of people and whether it's like walking with dogs or kicking a football or driving a car or building a shed or, you know, yeah. like all these different, different things. And, you know, it's the I suppose it's the conversations, isn't it? That brings this, this awareness out there. And then people can find the space that works for them. And if someone's going to hold f- space, people will just, like you say, they'll just tap on that shell, right. They'll just drop yeah. into that
1: space. Yeah. It's, it's very true. It's very, very true. I I'm curious about about you, like what ended up working for you? Uh,
0: for me, it was a combination of things. I'm a big fan of talking therapy, and that kind of got me to a place where I could understand a bit more about my thoughts, my feelings, the way I, you know, looked at the looked at the world. Um, but for me, it was to be honest, medication worked really well for me. Um yeah. I was res- I-, I wanted to ask you about that because I noticed in the notes on your website that it said that um, that you strongly resisted meds for oh, some time
1: for years.
0: same. <laughs> same yeah, for years. <laughs> yeah. and as soon as like as soon- I-, I got to the point where that I had nothing else to try, and it was my last roll of the dice. and you know, within a couple of weeks, then like, wow, life was manageable again, you know? And I always, whenever I talk about medication, I always say it's not for everyone. Make your right. own informed choice. Um, yep. But, you know, but for me personally, it was a um, yeah, it, it really, or they still continue to, um, to do the trick, you know, but why did you resist them? Gabe, if you don't mind me asking,
1: I don't mind you asking anything, <laughs> uh, nothing, nothing is off the table here. So I, I, I was first recommended medication in college. Um, so I was 19 and I had gone to therapy for the very first time at the college counseling center. And at this time, the college that I went to did not have a psychiatrist on staff. Uh, they, they do now. Um, so it was just counselors. And the counselor that I was seeing said, you know, I really think, um, as an adjunct to the work that we're doing here that you should be on, on some kind of uh, antidepressant. Um, And, uh, you know, so at that time they had to refer you out to a psychiatrist just in the town. And I was like, (laughs) uh, you know, it took me, it took me a long time to just get to counseling. Now we're talking about I'm sick enough that I need, psychiatric intervention, medication. I, I really didn't like that. Um, and I went to see this guy, I went to see the psychiatrist and he, you know, like psychiatrists do because they prescribe meds. He was like, yeah, you need you know, medication. And I was just like, <laughs> back the fuck off. And I don't, I, and I'm not taking it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be that sick. I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to have to need that. Um, and so I didn't, take it. And then I left college. Well, I, I graduated college and then I didn't go back to therapy. So I graduated in O2 and I didn't reenter therapy until t- 2010. And then I was in therapy and very shortly after starting therapy, my therapist was like, I think you need a little bit more help here. Um, and again, I don't want to need more help. I want to just do this with you. I don't, I, I, and the other thing about me, Tom, is I'm very—I um, don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drug, nothing. Like, and when I say I don't drink, it's like, oh yeah, I have—I have a beer every, t-. nothing, um, because I'm so scared of something influencing the way that I think and having some kind of like we're going to get in your brain and alter. Duh, duh, duh. I don't want it. I know, I'm fucked up enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? That That's my theory. And I have people say, to me, oh, Gabe, you'd be so funny drunk. <laughs> I'm funny enough sober. I don't need to be funny drunk. I don't want to know what I'm going to be like when my inhibitions are lowered. Um, I want to be in control. So the idea of some pharmacological substance kind of noodling around with my uh, neurotransmitters or whatever, I, I was not into that. Plus the fact that in 2010 I was working at a psychiatric hospital um, where patients were being given m- major meds, um, like hardcore antipsychotics, and were being snowed. And I was watching what medication was doing to people, and I didn't want my affect blunted. I didn't want to be, you know, shuffling around. And of course. I would tell my therapist this and he was like, you know, Gabe, nobody's going to be hitting you with like Haldol and Thorazine. And like, that's, that's not, that's not what you're going to be on. You're not going to be gorked out of your mind. Um, This would be a very low dose of an antidepressant to just really help you do the things you're doing anyway, and make life a little bit more bearable and a little bit more functional. And so really after about three years with him, and he would bring it up like every four months, every say, okay, Hey, you know, have you given any more thought to medication? Duh, duh, duh. And really slowly I just evolved into understanding that like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And if this can help me great. And if I try it and it doesn't help me, fuck it. I, I don't have to take it for the rest of my life if I don't. So I started on a low dose of uh, Lexapro Worked up to the therapeutic dose. I didn't feel any change at all. Um, then we tried a medication called Vibrid. Um, and that worked. That really worked for me. Um my my depressive symptoms, my my uh, anxiety symptoms. This is not a commercial for vibrid, it worked for me, great, it might not work for you, da, 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 da. whatever, all the legal bullshit. But for me, um, it's been a lovely complement to therapy and I'm still in therapy, it's been 11 years. Um, and uh, it's just helping keep me stable and helping me from really bottoming out, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I relate to that so much. Yeah, I for me when, I just before I started on medication, I used to kind of, I, I used to always say, if ever it was suggested to me, I used to say, look, I can't trust my thoughts. And I, but at least I know that they're mine because they're coming from me. They might be like wrong or really wild yeah but at least they're coming from me uh, you know i needed to know that the ground under my feet was the ground under my feet and i was just yep. yeah and that whole you know stigma as well you know i didn't want to be the like the guy taking pills and you know what now i am the guy taking pills and like life's a lot better than when i was a guy who wasn't you
1: know? yeah <laughs> like- and and tom I, like if you had high cholesterol you'd be the guy who takes fucking pills for your cholesterol so you, true. you whatever like we're we're everyone talks about you know, God, I really want mental health to be on the same plane as physical health. And you see someone walking around in a cast and nobody has any compunction about going, oh, wow, what happened? You know, what happened to your arm? And, oh, well, let me tell you, let me tell you the story. But, you know, you, you see someone exhibiting clear warning signs of worsening depression or suicide or they're they're increasingly agitated or they're not eating or sleeping or they're sleeping too much or they're giving away stuff like i you know i don't need this watch collection fuck i don't need this anymore we need to be able to go whoa what's going on what's happening um we we need to be able to do that with each other and not like oh god you know what if i'm wrong what if you're wrong who cares i i um When the pandemic was maybe like two or three months in, there was this guy I know who um, I actually met through OC87 recovery diaries. We did a documentary film on him. He was a surgeon at a a prominent Philadelphia hospital and um, experienced suicidal depression, um, had to be hospitalized for depression. And he wrote about this in a very prominent medical journal opened up about it. So anyway, we we made this short film about him, and this was a couple years ago. And and you know he and I are friends. And I saw on social media he made this post, and it said something like, um, "To anybody I have ever wronged, um, please forgive me." Um, and if anybody has anything they want to talk about, um, here's my cell phone number. Um. You know, I'd love to make amends with anyone. And I looked at that. And so I know, okay, so this guy has a history of suicidal depression. Um, We're we're in a pandemic. I don't know if he's working. Um, He's trying to tie up loose ends. It seemed like, so I was alarmed. So I reached out to him and I said, hey, um, maybe this is something, maybe it's nothing. Um, But I saw your post. Uh, about wanting to connect with people that you've wronged or that you've had conflict with in the past, whatever. And I'm just a little concerned. Are you okay? Are you thinking about killing yourself? And he wrote back to me almost right away. And he said, Gabe, you know, it, it's so moving that you saw that and that you wanted to ask me that. Um, thank you so much for doing that. I'm really okay. Um, But he said, you know, this pandemic has gotten me so uncertain. I mean, I could get covid and i could be on a ventilator and die and not have the chance to to apologize to people i need to apologize to for things and 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 um that's really why i posted this but i'm really okay um and so like oh god i was wrong uh so what i i opened up this door i'm not patting myself on the back i'm just i'm trying to communicate how important it is and how um how vulnerable and warm it is to check on somebody. That's um, that's a, that's a, a really um, that's a beautiful gift you can give to someone to say I, I see you, and I I want you to be here tomorrow, and I will put myself in a vulnerable situation to check and and make sure that you're you're, you're going to be here tomorrow.
0: Mm, that's a lovely, lovely um, sentiment, you know, and it just goes to show that the the signs that you saw in that post you know it might not have been you know taking his own life but it was very much death that was making him yes yeah. in that way right so death is death wherever it comes from so yes. it was a, it was a it was a catch in that respect you know it's clearly the the, the flags are the same aren't they you know but yeah it's a lovely lovely way of um yeah of putting it and i, I saw on your on your ted talk and you know when you talked about how people save people and the stories you know, create the community where we can do things like that, you know, where it's not weird or frowned upon, or just this, like, you know, that, that changing community is kind of, I suppose that's where, where we are. There's a lot of awareness. We're all aware, but now what do we do with it? Right. What do we do with that
1: awareness? Well, that's, and that's, that's the thing, right? So we, it's one thing to have awareness and that's absolutely wonderful. And so awareness by itself is fine, but when does it get to prevention? And, and I think a lot of people confuse awareness and prevention. And I talk about that a lot. Um, you know, people will sometimes call me, Oh, Gabe, you know, a suicide prevention, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mm, well, I, I promote awareness. Um, and, you know, have I prevented a suicide? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, maybe, but I feel like, and you may never know, that's the, you may never know if you have prevented a suicide and that's fine. Like, I don't need that, that tick on my, on my belt. You know Um, what I, what I do believe very firmly is that yes, awareness can lead to prevention and that um, there's this idea that we're, that we're kind of alone in our, our misery or our suffering uh, or our, that what we're, that what we're experiencing is either it's so aberrant or it's so shameful or I can't possibly talk about that to someone. I can't possibly tell someone that. And what I tell people when they say, well, how can I prevent suicide? Well, what can I do? I always say, be the kind of person who is open to anything to hearing anything. Remember what I told you a couple of minutes ago, nothing's off the table here. You can ask me anything. Um, And like, what would be the point of me having this conversation if I was like, you know, know, Tom, uh, here's a list of things we can't talk about today. Uh, I know this is a mental health podcast and I know I'm supposed to be really open, but really can't go here, 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 and here, sign here, here, here. Fuck that. Okay, so... um, as, as someone who um, if you say i want to prevent suicide and I want to um, help people and I want to listen then you can't be judgmental about anything you can't um like someone comes to you and have you be like oh, well I mean that that's a little much like i i i'm fine with helping you and listening but like I can't i don't want to hear about that well you have to because if that's what that person wants to talk to you about and if that's what that person needs validation for and if that's what they need warmth and compassion for then you better fucking be ready to give it to them or you better tell them i can't be this person for you right now um I hope that you find someone who can, I can't, I can't do this for you right now. I can't be this for you right now. You better be open about it. Um, so because people who are experiencing um, wanting to take their own lives, they're dealing with enough shame and stigma. Um, they don't need it from you. Uh, really? They don't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's so um, we just have to be just so aware how how fragile and how precious you know someone else's is state is and i what you know one benefit i think of or a few benefits actually of myself um going through my own period of ill health is it it definitely made me a better person a more caring person a more you know i have more empathy i genuinely you know, I might have said I cared before and I probably did to some extent, but now I really fucking uh, care, Gabe. You yeah. 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 And, yeah. the, and there is a the, there is a difference. And I think it's why so many people that have been through something awful want to do something. You know, there's very much that feeling, isn't there, that you, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I could possibly do. But I'd really like to just contribute in in some way, because, you know, yeah, when you have when you've been when you've been to those places, then you really want to. I don't know, just so mindful of other people going to them as well, right?
1: It's true. And and I, um, you know, living with depression and anxiety and, and uh, you know, that of course makes you more empathic, I think, to other people who are struggling and and working at the hospital too. Like, that was a very complicated five years um, and, and very, very damaging to me in a lot of ways. But... Um, what I will say is that, you know, kind of like your experience, um, it really made me more compassionate, um, and it 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 can also take your compassion away, um, because I think that place hardens you. Places like that harden you, and and they kind of have to, so that you can keep coming back to work every day and do what you need to do and not fall apart. Um, But I think once you, once you leave and once you can kind of look at the place from a a distance and see the suffering um, of the patients and of the staff as well, um, because we were all messed up too, you, you really, um, you really see it in a very beautiful way, a very painful way, but very beautiful. And also about like you use the word fragile. Um, There's nobody, there's nobody on this earth who for different circumstances couldn't end up in a place like that. Um, And as staff, you're, you very much, at least this was my experience. It's an us and them mentality. We're staff, they're patients. We have keys. They don't, we have ID badges. They don't have shit. Um, And we come and go as we please. They're locked in here for the night. But that line is very, very thin. And more than once I've come to work um, or I've been in the chart room and someone would say, oh, guess who's out in crisis? It's, it's so-and-so. And it's a colleague of ours. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's not us and them. And it's not just people with mental illness who take their own lives. Um, it's anybody can be at risk for suicide. Anybody can can end up in a psychiatric hospital. Anybody can need emergency mental health treatment. Um, anyone, because life throws things at you, and you may not be ready. Um, and I think being humble and recognizing that that yeah, life is fragile, um, and that we're all we all have those needs sometimes and and that's okay. It's very, very important.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's so much about society that doesn't serve us and life's default setting is challenging at best, you know, and there's, we're not always best, best prepared for that, I suppose. But, um, so when did your mental health, um, you know, when did your, this, this whole thing start to manifest for you, Gabe, when did you start experiencing these things?
1: Uh so I I know that I was having mental health symptoms as a child. Um that I was incredibly anxious as a child. Um I would force myself to stay awake all night long um because I was convinced that bad things happened at night and it, uh if I could force myself to stay awake until those first cracks of sunlight appeared through the blinds then I could go to sleep. Um so I was sleeping from like you know, six o'clock in the morning until eight in the morning or 830 when I would have to get up for school. And so I was completely like fucked up as a child. So I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was, I wouldn't go to the bathroom at school because I was afraid I would get beaten up in the bathroom. So I was holding in my pee all day, uh, you know, all kinds of wackadoo stuff like that. Um, and I told my mother at age nine or 10, and which is the, it's the age my children are now, they're nine and I have twins, they're nine and three quarters now. Um, I told my mother, you know, I need to talk to someone. You know, I'm not, I need, I need to talk to somebody. And she said, oh, Gabriel, you're fine. And, uh, and I clearly was not. <laughs> um, and, uh, but my... And I've tried to talk to my mother a number of times about this since, you know, becoming an adult and being a mental health and suicide awareness advocate. And it's just really, really hard to talk to. Um, and again, maybe I'm not the best person to do it. Uh, maybe I'm too cl- too close to this for her. With her, but um, you know, I was dismissed as, and and it was kind of just like, you're fine, everything's fine. Um, And so when it became clear that I wasn't going to get help as a child, I I just kind of accepted that. Um, I was kind of bullied elementary school, middle school, high school, college, uh, got very bad in college. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually I went to the counseling center in college because I knew I couldn't, I was having thoughts of killing myself and I knew that I was either going to do that or I was going to get help. And, um, I decided to get help.
0: Yeah, and it starts starts from there. Yeah, is there um additional stigma in the Jewish community, Gabe? I know very little about it, but I'm, something that I speak to a lot of people from various various you know, backgrounds relate mm-hmm. um, yeah, everything. And it, it, it does tend to differ depending on, you know, what's going on in people's in people's community, and people's families, stuff like that. Is that, is it wow. something that's looked, you know, differently at in the Jewish community?
1: So I love, I love that you asked that, Tom. Um, and so here's what I, th- and this is again, uh, um, I'm, uh, let me, let me phrase it this way. I'm not an expert in jack shit except for my own experience, okay? I am the expert in my own experience as Gabriel Nathan, um, human being. Uh, So I don't speak for people with mental illness. I don't speak for people who have been suicidal. I don't speak for the Jewish community. I can only tell you what my experience is. So in my experience with that very long caveat, um, when I think about like Jews, Jews in America, and and when I think about kind of cultural Judaism, and I, I don't, I'm not observant, I'm 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 culturally Jewish, right? And it's it's just what I am. Um, you know, I think about like there are these stereotypes about Jews and we're all neurotic and we're all um, you know really intellectual and we're all you know really really anxious and there's the the Woody Allen you know oh my god you know that that stereotype of Jews and of course you know Woody Allen has made 18,000 movies and he is always in therapy and and uh, you know Freudian bullshit right so there's this trope about Jews. Like every Jew has a therapist and every Jew, every therapist is Jewish and blah, blah, blah. Um, my therapist is Catholic. Um, and uh, just to throw that out there. And he and I actually had to do a lot of work together to help him understand cultural Jewish cultural ideas, because a lot of my problems kind of have are related to my Jewishness and my kind of. Um, my internal conflict about being Jewish um, I have a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff there. Yeah. I think in my, in my family, in my microcosm of Judaism, there were two things working together that were kind of working against me. So first of all, my father is Israeli. Um, and in that culture, at least back then, you know, when he was a child, nobody went to therapy. Nobody, nobody was anxious. Nobody. everybody was traumatized. You've got, you know, everyone's trying to kill you all the time. There are missiles pointed at your country. You're pointing missiles at other countries. You're there's this war. There's that war. You're just, nobody has fucking time for anxiety. Nobody, you know, no one has time for that kind of bullshit. Right? Like we're just trying to survive here. Um, but then you realize you look back at it through kind of a, a modern lens. And you're like, well, God, everybody's totally fucked up there, right? They're, they've all got PTSD. They're, they're all under constant threat. They've all got hypervigilance, right? So there's, there's his side of the family where you, you, you kind of just ignore all this stuff and, and just push it aside because you're just trying to survive, mm-hmm. My mother's side of the family is, uh, so Sephardi Jews are from so that, that part of the world, right? Ashkenazi Jews are kind of these Eastern European Jews. And and that's kind of where those sort of Woody Allen stereotypes uh, come from. Um, but my, my mother's side of the family, I think there's a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety, but you call it worry you don't call it anxiety and you don't, you don't, um, and you don't talk about it um, because there is shame there and that's private. That's, that's the message that I, I received growing up. Um, you know, Gabriel don't write about the family. That's private. You know, don't talk about your, your mental, don't talk about me. Um, and when I first started going to therapy in college, my mother would be like, so what, what did you talk about me? Um, I was just like, Oh my God. And suddenly be like, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, you know, and it's okay. I'm not putting it in the fucking New York times, but I am talking to my therapist about it. Um, and that's okay. So there, there is, there is definitely um, shame and secrecy at work. And when you're told don't talk about this, don't talk about that. Don't talk. The, the obvious question is why? What's what's so what's so wrong with us that we can't talk about it? And if we can't talk about it, we can't talk about it in the family because that's forbidden. And you can't talk about it in therapy. uh, What do you do with it? It just simmers and smolders, and it's gonna come out eventually. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think that's um, some of that as well. It's quite generational, isn't it? You know, like it seems with every generation, we get a bit better at talking about these things and expressing ourselves and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I suppose, and you know, like you mentioned there, like other generations had a lot more stuff to worry about. That you know, there's nothing. You know, it was all real. (laughs) You know, it's all happening. It wasn't like existential or or whatever, right? So, yeah, um, I suppose. I suppose to get through, like if you've lived through a war to get through that, you need to have this certain sort of like, you know, you can't be, you can't be worrying all the time or you just, just break down. Right. So you have these, this insane resilience, this really like resilience.
1: Well, it's the same as working in the hospital Mm. in the psych hospital. You can't be falling apart left and right. You've got to get out there and, and do your fucking job. And sometimes you need to do a takedown in the hallway and restrain someone. and, and, you know, or, or you've got to run group 10 minutes later, and you like you have to perform. And I've talked about this, that like, so I, I went to school for theater, right? So of course, I end up working in a psych hospital. But anyway, so like, my, my metaphor here is like, we had the chart room, where there were no windows, and it was just cinder block walls. And that's where the staff, we kind of hid. Um, and we would document our groups, and we would, joke around and we would fall apart and we would cry or we would yell at each other and, and argue about different patients and and uh, you know and then it's like oh, 11 o'clock, group time in the activities room and that's it's showtime and you you open that door to the unit and you're on stage and you've got to put on the show. Um, and only then when group is over, and you come back into the chart room and shut the door and you can collapse emotionally or physically um, and hug a colleague or cry or whatever. Like that stuff happened every day. Um, and so it, it was like getting through a war um, and you have those moments of release, but you, do, you need that kind of resilience to, to do your job. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that just sounds fucking exhausting, Gabe, to be honest with you. You know that when you've got a, if you've ever been a, in a in a situation where your mental health is declining and you've got to pretend to be OK. You know, for a long time, I didn't tell anyone I was sick, not even my wife. You know, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I just I couldn't vocalize that because I thought I'd get my children taken away from me and all this crazy yeah. stuff. that I just made up, you know, that was not based on anything, self-stigma, yeah. um, you know, and, and it was exhausting. Pretending you're right when you're not is exhausting exhausting and And we're we're marvelous
1: and we're marvelous pretenders right like because you have to you you really have to put on a good show when you're when you're super super depressed the amount of work that you have to do to to fake being okay that is exhausting um and it's just so so hard and then you have people die by suicide and people go well i just had no idea he was smiling, you know, he came into work and he did his job and he was productive and he yeah, he was working so fucking hard every day just to live, you know, another day, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's an incredible amount of work. It really is.
0: Yeah. Well, I think when someone says, you know, I had no idea, it's almost a compliment. Because it's like, well, right. yes, the acting was that damn good. That, right? good that, yeah. was, that was the whole point. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that really interested me about your um your drive across the country, Gabe, was how did you protect your own mental health during that journey? Because I was thinking every day you're having challenging conversations. You're on the road. You're away from home. You know, the home comfort, your family sleeping in different beds. And these are a lot of things that factor into you know, maybe not feeling so good talk, having all these deep conversations. Was that hard for you to hold space for that amount of time while on the
1: road? Um, Yes. And I, uh, I did a really shit job taking care of myself, to be really honest with you. Um, And I didn't, I, I thought about so much. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Who am I going to talk to? How, what time am I meeting this person? What do I do if I break down? Uh, what spare parts do I need to carry what, uh, what kind of oh my god and the GoPro cameras that that was a nightmare um, I'll never be sponsored by GoPro because they, they fucking suck and the micro SD cards wouldn't format and, and I'm having to download the footage every night and it was horrible it was it was absolutely horrible I would never people ask me hey when are you making another film never never um, let's be clear never never um, so I, I planned everything and I thought about everything except how I was gonna take care of myself. <laughs> um, and I really just didn't, I, I, really, I really didn't. And I was running on adrenaline for 11 days. Um, and I remember coming back, it was an extremely hot day. And I pulled up at Fresh Fly Studios, the, the company that edited the film, and I had uh, a portable hard drive. It was like a two terabyte or whatever the hell it is drive with you know a hundred hours of footage on it. And I, I walked in and I put the thing on the desk and I said, "I don't want to fucking see see this ever again." Um, call me when you have first draft ready. Bye. And I and I I just like didn't move for like two days. Um, because it was so just piloting that car on a freeway at freeway speeds for hours on end, and there's no radio and there's just, you're just talking to yourself. Um, you really start to, to lose it. Um, and I had just had it. I, I had just had it. So you know, oftentimes people who talk the most about self-care, they're generally the worst at it. <laughs> I was, I was very bad at, at that for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you have anything in your day-to-day life that you normally use to um, look after yourself? What's your own personal
1: um, self-care things, anything, uh, anything in particular? Um, cooking, cooking things that I love to eat, um, you know, really just making an intentional choice to make a lovely meal. Um, I, I, I also respond, um, really, really respond to music on a, on a deeply emotional way. Um, and so it, it, just putting on a CD, I'm that old, um, or, or you know, just listening to something that I really, really love, a singer songwriter who really deeply resonates with me, um, can be very moving. Um, going out for a little drive in Herbie right towards sunset and, and taking that in. Um, is a very special thing. Um, Reading to my children, I read to my children every single night. um, And I just love that time so, so much. Um, And really kind of, um, I have for a long time lived in a kind of haphazard way. um, And I'm really trying to make more intentional choices Intentional choices about what I bring into my house in terms of just objects and and things and furniture, making more intentional choices about who I want to spend time with, um, what kind of energy I want to be around, Um, that's helping me a lot, Um, kind of leaning into how I'm feeling instead of running from it. And being like, oh, I'm I'm really upset about something. Well, I better not think about that. <laughs> um, now I'm like, I better think about that um, and spend some time with that. Like maybe that's a yuck emotion, but like, let's let's listen to that for a little bit and try to figure out what that's about. Um, I kind of like, I kind of like that.
0: Mm, yeah and like so so important isn't it it's hard to you know when we run from these things and we distract ourselves from these these feelings these emotions sometimes you know i got to a point where i didn't know i didn't know what i was supposed to feel i didn't know what things meant i lost all my signposts right i didn't know yes, all yes. this stuff and it, it took a long time I'm still doing a lot of work on that but um to kind of learn all oh, right i feel like this why oh why do i feel like this what can i do about it you know and all these all these steps, but yeah, when you run, you just end up running from everything, even the good stuff
1: sometimes. Yes, right? yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah.
0: And what I thought was lovely then is that um, all the things that you mentioned involved being really, really present, you know, everything you discussed then was just like really, really, really present in the moment. And that is just such a, such a powerful, um, a powerful tool, I think, you know, well, there's it's, this, it's brilliant.
1: there's this real push pull with anxiety and depression. So like, anxiety wants to pull you over here to the future. Like, well, what, what if this happens? What if that, what about this? What about that? This could happen. That could happen. And depression is like, let's think about this thing from 10 years ago and really beat ourselves up about it. Like, let's really feel like shit about this thing that you said to this person, you know, or this person hates you. Let's, let's, let's get in there about that. And so, yeah, it's, it's no, I'll be with you in a minute. Uh, we'll We'll think about that a little bit later. Let's be here right now. Let's be in the middle, let's be in this day um, together. Um, and you know, that's where, anxiety and depression are kind of on the periphery of, of the present. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, and look, I'm by no means perfect at it. I, I'm it's very easy to seduce me to, to we're freak out about what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going to be in the future. And what are you going to die of? And what you go? Know, oh my God. And what kind of nursing home are you going to end up in? Who's going to love you? And da, da, da. it's, that's very attractive that, that lore. I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do that. Let's freak out about that. It, it really takes a lot of work and practice to kind of be like, I, I want to be here now. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It is hard. Yeah, it's switching off that
0: automatic pilot, isn't it? And yeah, trying to get back some of that that control. Yeah, definitely. And um, something else I was really keen to chat to you about, Gabe, is um, the how we talk about suicide and the language that we use around suicide because I think that ag- adds to the stigma. You know, I think suicide is a it's a scary word. It's scary to say. It's scary to hear. Um, And then, yeah, and how we talk about, you know, people who have taken their own lives, the fact that we're still using this phrase to commit suicide, you know, as if it's like a a legal, a legal thing. Um, And I think it's it's coming now into, you know, into society that that's not, you know, that phrase isn't suitable. You know, it's not a, a nice way to talk about it. But we haven't quite found anything to replace it with which you know so people who are scared of the word suicide it's a bit like cancer right so they tend to almost whisper it in the sentence yeah to, so someone will say like you know i oh, you know our oh, so-and-so he uh, committed suicide yeah and they'll like yeah. whisper but so they're using that phrase but you can't do a suicide you can't you know take a suicide so there isn't almost the there's nothing to replace that so people keep right. keep using it but it adds to the stigma doesn't it the way we talk about it and the way it comes up Absolutely. in conversation, yeah
1: so it, it really does. And that that word commit is is it's for crimes and it's for sins. Um, and suicide is neither. Uh, and I don't give a shit what religion you believe in. and I don't care where you go to worship. And I don't give a fuck what whoever wears the little dog collar or whoever has, you know, whatever on his head and wearing whatever robes tells you fuck you. If you're going to get up in front of a congregation and tell people that it's a sin to kill yourself and that you're going to go to hell. Uh, it, I can't think of anything more cancerous and anything more malignant and vicious and horrible to tell people because what that communicates is, well, if I'm having those thoughts, I better not tell anybody and I certainly better not go to my beloved clergy member and open up to to them. Right. You need to be open to everything. Like I said before. Right. So when you, when you mention the, the word the phrase "commit suicide is is so ingrained in our parlance. And even I still feel it on my tongue as, as a suicide awareness advocate, it wants to come out because it's just so natural. Right. So what do we replace it with? Well, we replace it with simply factual language. Died by suicide. So-and-so died by suicide. It's, it's just a fact. It's not, it's not this loaded, uh, committed, it's, it's not this thing that's burdened with stigma or shame. Um, someone died by suicide across the street, literally across the street from me last week. They took their own life. They killed themselves. They died by suicide. They're just facts. They're just factual statements. Um, and so when you can simply speak in a factual way that th- isn't loaded with any kind of judgment, um, doesn't use any judging words, it's not said in a whisper, it's just a statement of fact, um, it just normalizes talking about it. Um, I was able to talk about it with my next door neighbor um, just have a regular conversation. There was no, well, you know, he died like suicide. <laughs> what the fuck? Why? Why? Why do we have to do that? No one would say, Yeah, he had diabetes, you know. <laughs> um, I so we can talk about suicide, we can talk about it. We're grownups, <laughs> we're and you can talk to children about it. Um, I had a parent at my children's school come up to me on the schoolyard at pickup, you know, pickup time and say, uh, you know, if thanks to your car, I have to talk to my kids about suicide now. And I said, Good. Good. That's great. Um, and this guy, you know, he fucking walked away from me. But you know what? Good. And I'll tell you another quick story about children. My son came up to me last week and he said, you know, daddy, um, we were, we were in art and the teacher was talking about this, um, artist. I don't, I don't know the name, but a Hispanic artist. Um, and my son said, and the artist died, I think like 26 and someone in the class raised their hand. And they said, well, how did he die? And the teacher was like, uh, well, Uh, you know, sometimes, um, you can, uh, the, the, the pressures of success can really get to you. And, um, you know, sometimes it can be too much for some people. And, uh, and my son said to me, like, daddy, like, why couldn't she just say he killed himself? Uh, and I said, you know, Elijah, um, I don't know. But I think it's really sad um, that your teachers don't know how to talk about this in a developmentally appropriate way to children. And I said, maybe your school needs me to come and have a conversation with these teachers uh, about how to talk about suicide to children. My children know what it is. Uh, They know what that number on the back of my car is. They know what I used to do at the psychiatric hospital. Um, There are children as young as nine who are taking their own lives. So you better fucking learn how to talk about suicide to children. Um, So, you know, we don't need to glorify it. We don't need to use um, really graphic language. We don't need to talk about the means that people use. Um, It's not necessary. Nobody needs to know that um, except like a medical examiner and the family, nobody else needs to know. Um, It's just not relevant. we don't need to use the word commit um, and we need to let people know one very important thing about suicide is that anybody can be at risk for taking their own life, anybody. Um, And that having those thoughts is normal. It's just when the thoughts don't go away, when it becomes incessant, when it becomes all we think about and it becomes kind of, every other thing kind of goes away and like that's the thing um you know then it's then it becomes something that needs to be addressed immediately
0: yeah yeah i suppose when you i remember with me the first time it kind of crossed my mind i remember being shocked myself mm-hmm. and just being like whoa don't want to put that back in the box you know but over time it's like anything you watch your scariest horror movie enough times it stops being scary right and then suddenly you become very very comfortable with with these sorts of words and phrases and then like you say you know you start to um Yeah, start to thinking about it a heck of a lot more. And that's when it gets gets very scary. But I absolutely adore what you just said about the about the children, then, Gabe. I love that so much. Because if we we're talking about talking and we're talking about creating space and having communities where we can be open and we can share, well, we can when we lie to our children, they're gonna they're not gonna be children forever and they're gonna learn this stuff and they're gonna go daddy lied to me that I can't yes. trust him right if I can't right. trust him over this stuff how can I speak up you don't speak up to people who lie to you you don't trust right. people with with something scary if you know that they haven't been open and honest with you you know like it's that you can't you know we, we can't keep this stuff to ourselves and then turn around and go oh I can't believe our kids don't don't trust me I can't believe my kids right. don't say anything yeah so- why
1: don't they talk to me why don't they why don't
0: they yeah yeah, exactly. I've been coming in line to him since he was five, you know, of course he doesn't want to talk to me, you know? So yeah, I love that so much. And I just want to, um, just looking at on my notes here, Gabe, but one thing I just want to um, just touch on before we sign, sign off, mate, is, um, is OC 87 because mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, it just sounds like a really wonderful space.
1: What is it you do there and how long have you been in, in, involved with that? mate? So OC 87 recovery diaries, it's, it, it's an online publication. Um, We feature personal essays by folks with lived experience of mental health challenges, and we make short subject uh, documentary films, you know, professionally produced, beautiful little films. Some of them are like four minutes, some of them are eight or ten. And uh, we're a nonprofit. um, So if you want to donate to us, that would be lovely. (laughs) Um, But I'm the editor in chief. And so I supervise two part time editors and I basically manage the day to day operations of the site. Um, I edit essays myself. I, I have a, a little portfolio of writers with whom I work on their recovery essays and I help them with their storytelling. And I you know, will nudge them a little bit. Hey, it looked like you wanted to talk about this. You know, why don't you open up a little bit more? And I kind of serve as like a, a coach um, for people who are telling their stories. Um, and we pay our contributors. Um, if you write a, a recovery essay for us, you get $150. Because we really, we really believe that, you know, you should be compensated for for telling it's a really vulnerable thing to do. Um, so there are literally hundreds of personal essays uh, on the site. There are dozens and dozens of short subject documentary films. It's all free. You can watch all of our films, um, read every single essay by folks living with bipolar, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, um, substance abuse. Uh, um, you know, anything really. Um, and there are essays from all over the world. Um, we've got essays from Rwanda, from India, um, everywhere. So, and what I love about that is it's it's really a, an international community. And when I work with a writer from another country, um, it's so interesting to see how mental health is treated either from like the inpatient perspective or just cultural attitudes to stigma. Um, their experience what is different and also what is the same what is what is unique or or what is universal
0: yeah yeah i love that there's there's so much there that's brilliant you know sort of first of all relatability for people to read it when you feel alone when you feel like you're there's no one else could possibly have been through this thing that you're going through just to read one line, all has to be is one line and go that's that's a bit of me and that can that can be so powerful expressing your thoughts by writing them down, creativity, having a a create outlet, a project, a a finished product is really, really powerful. You know, there's so much stuff there that's just absolutely brilliant. I'll make sure I've put all the, again, all the links and stuff in the episode notes, because I think people who listen can really, um, yeah, really get a lot out of that. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, Read,
1: read, submit, watch films, whatever you want. There's something that's going to be there for you that, that will resonate with you for sure.
0: Oh, mate, fantastic. Well, Gabe, I can't thank you enough for your time today. That's my pleasure. This evening for you, for this evening for me and and today for you. But um, yeah, that was absolutely wonderful. And it was a real pleasure to meet you. And I I really sincerely hope that Herbie gets well soon, mate. I um, hope you guys are back on the road together soon. As you say, we'll get him sorted. Yeah, that's it. Exactly, mate. Oh, thanks, Gabe. That's wonderful. Cheers. Thank you. listening from the proper mental
1: podcast please like and subscribe Plus five star